Good morning. Welcome to Bible Truth Project, uh, the podcast. I want to welcome you this morning. What a beautiful day we have in store for us here in Ohio. But I have to think about the victims of the flood down in Houston. What a tragedy. Prayers go out to them and hope that everything goes well for them down there. Uh, looks to be a pretty, pretty massive storm, perhaps even in the line of what happened in New Orleans, they're saying. So prayers for them down there. The last week, I've been focusing on doing research uh, to to help me understand better the uh, context of what is out there as far as the two houses. I know I have done a podcast not that terrible long ago, kind of a four-part series where we were just looking at biblical verses uh, or the references in what a uh, what what the Bible is saying about. Uh, the subject matter. Now, since then, I've looked up and I've seen that there's a lot of, uh, there's kind of a doctrinal understanding of that out there called the two house movement. Honestly, did not know much about it. The reason I looked it up is because I was on Facebook and I had gotten a, uh, a question in regards to that. And I was like, well, I'm not really familiar with that. So I looked into it and in essence, there are similarities. However, they are they are uh, twisting some things. I think out of context. To and that's what often is raising the objections to it. So this morning, I'm going to comment about that and some other things as we go along on the show this morning. So to reiterate, what what is the implication here? What what does the Bible? say what is what is the implication what is the ultimate plan what is the purpose if you will well we have to we have to realize that god did uh cut off israel the northern tribes because of the rebellion they had they did a lot of things very wrongly they had set up uh, false idols in bethel and in dan and they caused the nation of israel in the north to sin judah still went to jerusalem but Jeroboam was afraid that his people were going to, are going to go down to Jerusalem and they're going to realize that uh, that they should be loyal to David David's uh, lineage, not to Jeroboam. So Jeroboam built these two idols, and generations of Israel uh, Israel kings, this is again the northern tribes, refused to deal with those idols because they were afraid of what the people would do if they would go down and truly worship God at his temple. After years and years and years and generations of this idolatry and, and the evil and wickedness of Israel in the north, God um, basically warned them uh, through the prophets saying that you're going to be destroyed, you're going to be cast to the nations, you're going to, you're going to disappear. But then it also gives a bunch of uh, redemptive material in which God is going to redeem his people Israel is going to redeem the house of Israel. He's going to make a new covenant with them. And it distinguishes, in Jeremiah 31, it distinguishes the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So we have to recognize that God is distinguishing these people groups. Now, today, we really don't have a way of proving exactly who is who. There is uh, the theory that the Anglo-Saxons are Israel, the idea of British Israel. And it could be that there is some truth to that. We, we cannot, however, know 
explicitly that that is the truth. However, when we do look at Irish history, we do look at Scottish history, going back to the Celts, the Celts came from uh, Anatolia and would have migrated. So there is some, there is a potential. I mean, it's not a clear cut history. It is a debatable history, but there is a possible connection there as far as the people that came uh, to Gaul and uh, the Celtic uh, regions, okay, the Celts and the Gauls would have had perhaps a common ancestor. That is That has been some idea. And the Celts eventually being crowded into the Isles, uh, the British Isles, and so you would have had different kings there. There's another uh, theory that also says that Jeremiah sailed with the royal line of David to Ireland, and the Irish kings, the first ones, um, there would have been a lot of Danites. Um, there's Danites potentially that had sailed from Egypt at the time of the Exodus and gone to Greece. Uh, there was a lot of of uh, back and forth between the the people groups in that time frame, and so it is possible that Danites went to Greece and that these were Semitic peoples who, who went by the name of Dan. It's possible that this is true. We, we cannot prove this unequivocally, but there is tombs and things in Greece that are of the Danai and that even Jewish people have looked at as being possible uh, descendants of the tribe of Dan. Now, ultimately, what is the reason what is the reason for this? And there's different people have different ideas about that. Honestly, does it affect salvation? Does it affect the spread of the gospel? No, it does not. We still have to respond to Jesus. We still have to accept him and we have to repent from our ways uh, and be baptized. Salvation is clear cut. And it doesn't mean that you're special because you are of the tribes. However, if we look at the implication in scripture, you're going to have the, the judges, if we look at Jesus, it said that he, he is going to put the 12 apostles on. Uh, they're going to judge the, tri- ten, the 12 tribes of Israel. Which is kind of a fascinating thing. Jesus uh, mentioned this. And we read that in uh, Matthew uh, let me look here. Matthew nineteen twenty eight. It says, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, and ye shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this is an element which we don't really want to, like, like some people say, well, it's 144,000, etc. I'm not getting into that. To me, that's just speculation because we don't really know. But we do know that there's going to be a recognition of the 12 tribes of Israel when Jesus returns. Because that is one of the things that he says will happen with the apostles. They are going to sit with him on his throne judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we have to look at the implication of that. What is that referring to? What does that mean? Uh, Why is that important? Didn't God put away that in the one new man? And and yes, he did. He did put away that in the one new man. It's not about Jew or Gentile or Greek. It's we are all new in him. However, God is going to wrap up his story that he started to write thousands of years ago with Abraham. You know, it's easy in today's day to forget the continuum of faith that we are passing on. We kind of think of it has existed forever as far as in the Bible and things like this. 
And we cannot deny the multitude of verses in the Old Testament uh, referencing the return of Ephraim, God loving Ephraim, him, lo- him bringing him out of the nations, gathering him for the four corners. That gathering, I don't believe in its entirety, is the coming back of the Jewish people. I believe that is a portion of it. I believe it's important uh, in this timeline. However, I think there is this exponential increase in discussing this point, especially in the last four years. If you look at the research on in the internet, there's an explosion of information regarding lost tribes uh, on the internet. And I, and I always am careful with that because you can get into the line of mysticism and speculation and myth. And it's just all of a sudden you kind of lose the essence of what's important. And, and we have to be careful of that. So we need to dig, dig for the truth and see what God says, and then we get out, and we, we back away, and we just, we allow God to do his work, and remind him of his promises that he made, and so on. I do believe that God is going to expose his people, uh, his, his nations. If you look at what God did promise Abraham, many nations, plural, I think he's going to reveal these truths when he returns. I think it's going to be an amazing sight. It's going to be kind of an, an underhanded, uh, j- just a, a backstory that we just simply, as people, couldn't figure out. And he's going to show us his majesty and his wisdom and his in his understanding. It's going to be such a beautiful picture. And there is definitely truth in that that Ephraim and the, the other ten tribes, they've lost their identity. We do not know who they are we don't know exactly who they are we can speculate and we can even speculate somewhat accurately however we do not know but in today's day if we look at the promises that were given to them it would seem that there is some connection somewhere to the united states and to great britain perhaps france perhaps germany Perhaps some of the other European nations. There, it would appear that there might be some connections. However, this is just speculation. I can't prove anything at this point. I would say that search the matter out. Look at it and see what you think for yourself. It is an incredibly interesting subject. It's one that a lot of people are not focusing on because it's, it's hard to understand. Just as eschatology has gained momentum in the last 50 50 to 100 years so i believe the subject is going to gain momentum too because i believe it's important uh for the return of jesus i think he is going to call his people from the nations and they're going to be drawn back to the land they're going to be drawn back and they're going to have a yearning to return they're going to have a love for their brothers the jews and that is not explainable by mere, well, you know, I'm a Christian, and I'm, I love Jesus, and so I love, uh, I love his people. There is an element of that that's true, but there's, there's an element that's deeper than that. Why is it specific people groups have more of a drawing than others? And so I think we have to, we have to understand and, and, and dig into the truth of what is happening. And it's one of these things that the enemy... I believe, honestly, it's because it is one of the greatest stories ever told. The return of the one he's cut off. I believe, honestly, the prodigal son is perhaps, in in part, a telling of the story of God's two sons, Ephraim 
and Judah, which is the collective uh, titles for all the tribes. It's perhaps that story because Judah has been faithful. Judah has has followed Torah, has followed God's commandment. His, um, you know, in the Old Testament, we're talking New Covenant, but the Old Covenant they followed the commandments more than than Ephraim has. Ephraim was lost, and he was in the slum pits out in the world, and all of a sudden, there's a return. There's a push to return, and. God, the Father, Judah does not like this. Judah does not like the He's not for it, because he sees, he sees his father celebrating with with this uh, with this brother. That is somewhat of an astounding observation. It's never quite a hundred percent made sense to me. It does, in the sense that you know people have always said you know prodigal son means you know the son that was lost comes back. God celebrates more over him. You know. Well, yeah, I get it. I mean, I, I get there's there's some truth there, uh, but there was a son before. I mean, he was a son before. This was not like a sinner who just decided to go out into the world and do this and come back. This was a son who decided to to squander his inheritance and to, to go out and just live recklessly and do whatever he wanted to and who decided that in his father's house he can be much happier even as a servant. And so he comes back from that capacity. God welcomes him as a full royal son. Puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, and he is recognized as a royal son. I mean, it is a tremendous picture. Is Jesus talking about, and it's a parable, so it could mean different things. Is Jesus talking about the rebirth of Israel? Now, in James and uh, there's another reference there, too, to the ten tribes who are dispersed about. So, in the time of Jesus, it was obvious that there was some knowledge of the ten tribes, people, remnants being around in other parts of the world. Because they acknowledged them. They acknowledged them as uh, as in, being in existence. And I think that's important. I do believe it's important. And so we need to recognize it was important enough for the gospel writers to reference it, and it should be important enough for us to look at the subject objectively and say, well, maybe God will do something, maybe he won't. We have to just see. His prophecies definitely indicate, yes, there's going to be a rebirth and coming back of Ephraim. There's going to be a recognition of who he is, God accepting them. Is that the Christians, believers? Personally, I would probably say yes. In part, that it must that is probably part of the, part of the coming back. Jesus made mention, you know, "My sheep know my voice." Well, we, we we know that from a believer standpoint. You know, we're his sheep and we know his voice. Okay, well that's that's good. But why did he then also say? Uh, I am not come but to the lost house, or the, to the lost sheep, excuse me, of the house of Israel. Now, the fullness of Israel is true, okay? I, mean, I think he was referring to probably the whole house of Israel. But he was including all the others who were lost sheep. Marginalized. They were all marginalized. They were spread to the nations. And he came to the lost sheep. And his message, I believe, has found uh, resonance in 
people who do not even know who their identity is, who do not even recognize that. And I believe it might just be the icing on the cake that God uses at the end to just show forth his power and his wisdom and his majesty that 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 believers across the world are actually descendants of Israel who have been gathered together again to Judah, and the two have become one stick, just as Ezekiel prophesies it. He prophesies it as an exceeding great army, the dry bones coming to life, sinews and flesh, and it's referring to Israel. Some people have said it's the Jewish nation. Well, I think in part it probably is, but I also believe there's more to it. These are tremendous promises that we have to think about. I know it's a little bit of a complicated subject. I apologize for that. Um, I've tried to look through with clarity to see ultimately what is the heart of God in the matter. What is important in this? Why does it affect me and why do I care? And from that standpoint, I have to just say, well, God felt it important enough to include it in his book. So I need to uh, look at it. Secondly, I want to talk a little bit about something I came across uh, last few weeks. I mean, the Lord has been has been speaking to me as far as in regards to the law, the covenants, the truth of the whole matter. It's easy for us as believers to get hung up in this side or that side or this doctrine or that doctrine or this one is bigger, that one, whatever. It's easy for us to get hung up in our own experience and as far as what we have uh, what we see. And it, and we can definitely just cut off any other viewpoint and say, you know what, that's just hogwash. But we have to recognize that God does speak to other people. He speaks through different people. And in doing so, he reveals himself somewhat differently to different people for the benefit of the collective body. So when we come together, we learn all the different attributes of him, which is which is a beautiful picture. Obviously, it can't go against the word of God, but that is, in essence, the beauty of the body of Christ. There's revelation, and the revelation is what makes us unique. It's the revelation of Yeshua through his body. That is what makes the church unique and beautiful and powerful. And it's ultimately what's kept the church alive for thousands of years because the Bible itself is not the answer. There's plenty of other ancient books around that have not had the influence power as the Bible. It's because of the revelation of Jesus, which is the rock which the church is founded on. But if we look at uh, these different things, there's, there's this term that I've heard uh, people talk about old covenant condemnation. And some of this is because there are some preachers who preach a new covenant, who preach a new covenant doctrine in a somewhat personal style, which is, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with preaching uh, new covenant doctrine and, and et cetera. It's most what the new Testament is. I mean, it is talking about the new covenant, but we, we, we tend to neglect some certain details about the two covenants that we have to uh, get a hold of and, and understand. See, the first covenant, and I've heard some people uh, uh, basically say that the covenant was gone, it's no good anymore, God rejected it because he rejected Israel, etc. Well, it's, it's a replacement theological standpoint, but we cannot just throw out the co covenants because the new covenant is built on 
the Mosaic Covenant, which is also built on the Davidic Covenant. There's there's multiple covenants at play here. And if we're just going to chuck out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, how are we going to have any foundation to what we believe in the New Covenant? We don't. It is based in the Old. So what what is what is this ultimate separation? New Covenant living, life of the believer, you know, there's been several thousand years of this. We have seen... We have seen this uh, coming back. We have seen the New Testament preached for thousands of years. And the fruit of that has been what? For a lot of believers, let's just be honest here, a lot of them have gone off on the deep end, have believed heresies, have believed lies, have tried to deceive people have preached another gospel, have not been faithful in the way. And so what, what that, and that's a scary thought because the, the way is very narrow. It is not a broad way. And we've been accused at our church here of, of kind of, I, I don't know what, what you call it. I think old, some people call it old covenant condemnation. Other people say just legalism. Some people say, uh, going back to the old law and, and things like that. Well, let's just be honest here. Jesus lived in the Mosaic Covenant. Yes, he fulfilled it by his life okay, and by his death. He fulfilled it so that we can be partakers of it. I am not advocating that a Gentile must keep the law because God made the covenant with Israel. He did not make a covenant with the Gentiles. All right, the covenant that is open to the Gentiles is the new covenant. So for for that, we are in debt. And so we will obviously keep the commandments that Jesus gave us. Now, here's the remarkable thing about this whole picture. And I did not realize this, but did you know that there are, from what I can look, from what I can see, there's about 1,050 commandments in the New Testament. Okay, these are different instructions, snippets of instructions that they gave to uh, that the apostles gave to us and Jesus gave to us. 1,050. All the commandments in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, etc. Total about 613. So we have a almost 30% increase in commandments. Even more than that actually. In commandments in the new covenant as we versus the old covenant. What? What are you saying? How can this be? Paul said very clearly, this is a better covenant, better promises. And God does have expectations. And he teaches us individualistically in more detail what he expects out of our hearts. I grew up a preacher's kid. And I've seen about every type of person, color, and uh, color of doctrine. I mean, just, I've seen it all. Okay, I've seen all sorts of people with different ideas. Uh, come in, come out through our church, etc. And invariably, you're going to have people who have differences. I mean, at the same time that an accusation came of legalism, we had an accusation of liberalism. It's just people, people are really miserable in their natural, unsaved state. They just are. In, in, in our, especially when we just have carnal thinking, when we're not spiritual minded, we don't when we're not walking in the spirit, we are we are just 
we are the en- we are enmity against God, just the way the Bible says. And I've I've seen this in believers over and over and over and over. They hang up on something and they think they've got the answer. They think they've got it, yet they're divisive, and they 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 are they are teaching their way, their understanding as the only way, and anybody else is just doesn't have the correct understanding of it. Brothers and sisters, this is wrong. This is very wrong. See, the key of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. The key of it is the Holy Spirit. In the Old Old Testament, there was even people who received the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't poured out upon all flesh as it is available in the new covenant. Now, most people have not partaken of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. They haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you to do so because it unlocks the door. It unlocks the secrets of the new covenant. Truly, Jesus' yoke is easy. His burden is light. But there is a load to pull. There is, uh, there is a working of our own salvation. There is a deeper... Uh, how would you say this? There is a deeper life that we must strive for. There is truth that we must dig for. God wants us to exercise our faith and to dig and to try to understand the depths of what he has for us. Not to get hung up on individual things and biases. I think a greater sin, a lot of these people uh, that are somewhat individualistic, a lot of the sin is that they can't get along with anyone. If we really study the Torah, if we study the Torah and we study the New Testament, they all pointed, and just like Jesus said, they all pointed to two main things. They pointed that you must love the Lord, that God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments that God has given to mankind. Love your neighbor and love God. And these are the two probably most violated. We love our, what I have seen, and even out of myself, I love myself. I love my way. I love what I see. I love what I do more than I love my neighbor's. And God has said that we must love our neighbors and we must love God. It's what God says and we must respect each other. And I have seen the ugliest of situations in churches because people feel they have a special revelation or they have seen or they have some kind of special word from God and they make a absolute mess of presenting it because they don't do it in love. And Paul is very clear about that unless you have charity you're like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You're just you're just a bunch of noise. And honestly, that is the problem. People who have issues, who want to raise issues in church, when they present them, they don't present it in love. They present them with an edge. And in doing so, they just have become noise. We as believers are not called to that. We are called in the New Covenant to a higher standard than that we are called to a higher law the law of the life of spirit of the spirit in jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death so our freedom from the law comes through the power of the spirit it's not a okay now i'm boom now i'm in this or not we have to walk in it there's just i don't know it's maybe too deep to get into because it's it's, it's one of these things I, I've just seen so much violation 
and people claiming to be spiritual, claiming that they have uh, something special and, and making a difference with a brother. It's wrong. It is just absolutely wrong. I can have a difference of opinion with my dad. I can have a difference of opinion with a brother. That's okay. But I must love them, number one. And if I can raise hostility, if I come from a hostile standpoint and 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 comment and and say things that I really shouldn't be saying, I have to humble myself and go back and say I was wrong. You have to be reconciled to your brother. And if you're the one that instigated it, it's your responsibility. Same goes for me. If I instigate an accusation against my brother, I'm also responsible for that accusation. So, brothers and sisters, let let's not be that way. Let, let's not unload on our church leadership. Let's not unload on church ministers who give their life to study and to understand what God is saying. And it is not easy. It's difficult. It's hard to be faithful, to get up and to go on. And you can easily have an opinion and never have preached in your life and get up and then you want to try to somehow raise your, your opinion as though you have... Uh, a voice which hey speak it's fine but do it in love do it in love do it in love if you're going to do it do it in love do it in reverence do it in respect because if you do not you are violating the very thing which you say you're upholding we have to stop this we have to stop it right now in america in this church in the universal church, I should say. We have to stop this. This is truly at, at epidemic levels across the nation. I have uh, different passages that I've heard from. It's just the same thing. People have just have no love. They're so sensitive. Every little thing is, is it, it's just wrong. It's, it's an outburst of evil against the church. So, Anyway, repent from that, and, and if that's been you, repent. Make it right, and love. You can have differences, no problem, but love. If you are guilty of that, you are guilty of all. Until next week, thank you.